Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast. This is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of FinTech Nexus. I've been doing these shows since 2013, which makes this the longest-running one-on-one interview show in all of FinTech. Thank you for joining me on this journey. If you like this podcast, you should check out our sister shows, Pitch It, the FinTech Startups Podcast with Todd Anderson, and FinTech Coffee Break with Isabel Castro. Or you can listen to everything we produce by subscribing to the FinTech Nexus podcast channel. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the many opportunities you have to reach the FinTech Nexus FinTech community outside of our main events. We do regular sponsored webinars on a variety of topics. We also produce in-depth white papers. We have advertising opportunities within our newsletters, website, and podcasts. We also do sponsored blog posts, dedicated emails, and much more. If you want to reach a senior fintech audience, then please contact sales at fintechnexus.com today. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Clara Sieg. She is a partner at Revolution Ventures. Now, you may know Revolution. They are, It's a venture capital firm started by Steve Case and others, Steve Case being the founder of AOL. And actually, Clara's been there almost from the beginning as well. She talks about uh, how she got involved and why she decided to take her career into venture capital. We talk about the the thesis of revolution, which is often being sort of geographically agnostic and making investments outside of the major hubs of the Bay Area and New York City. We talk about why they do that. We discuss a couple of the the fintech investments they have made that um, Clara has driven. And we talk about her favorite areas, fintech, and her outlook for the next 12 months. It was a fascinating discussion. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Clara. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Likewise. So let's kick it off by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. I know you've been at Revolution for some time, um, but can you just give me a little bit of the background on your career? Um, So I started my career in investment banking. I joined the Leverage Finance and Financial Sponsors Group at UBS um, right after I graduated from Stanford. And that group quickly rebranded to Leverage Finance and Restructuring. It was, you know, right in the 08, 09 time period. So pretty turbulent time to be doing that sort of work. I left there with one of the managing partners from our group to start our own restructuring firm. And the thesis there was there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies coming out of um, that acute period of time. And you know, there were a number of firms servicing mid-market and upstream um, in terms of the restructuring side of the business, but nobody really doing the lower end of the market because it wasn't really profitable part of business. Mm-hmm. And we thought we could apply a little bit of technology and be able to service that side of the business better and really own that piece of the market. Ultimately, Obama was very successful in terms of writing the ship in 09-2010 and that wave of bankruptcies that we had predicted were really all refinanced out. So that just fundamentally didn't work in terms of a a thesis. And I went and started working for one of my old bosses um, from UBS at a fund formation and secondaries trading platform really focused on venture and growth managers. And in that capacity, I got to know Steve Case and Ted Leontis and um, David Golden and Tag Savage, who are my partners now at Revolution. 
helped them raise our first institutional fund back in 2010, and then joined full-time shortly thereafter, helped launch our San Francisco office, and have been focused on the venture side of, of our firm since then. So really Series A, Series B opportunities anywhere from call it three to 15 million as an initial check-in and partnering closely with founders um, to help scale their businesses. Steve Case, obviously famous through AOL. And did this sort of start out as a, as a family office type thing or, or to tell us a little bit about the origins? Yeah, exactly. So when Steve left AOL, he really began Revolution as a family office, um, largely his capital, but also some of the other principals. We invested about half a billion across a bunch of early stage companies that turned into follow-on activity that turned into the natural constraints of investing out of a family office. And when the recycling portion um, of the the strategy broke down a little bit in 08, 09, it became clear that in order to continue to support the portfolio companies and still be able to make investments in new opportunities, we should raise a little bit of outside capital. We've done that. We've got close to $3 billion under management at this point, and it's largely outside investors. So, you know, your, your typical LPs, foundations, endowments, pension funds, et cetera. Okay, so then what was it that attracted you? Was it a specific opportunity about revolution or was it just venture capital in general? What made you kind of take this career step? You know, as somebody who lives in San Francisco and went to Stanford, venture capital is interesting in that regard. I think I've always liked the mix of math, my dad's a math professor, and the human and real world applicability that sits at the nexus of early stage venture. So that that personally just fits fits well with me. And I think Revolution's perspective was particularly interesting to me because they have had a long history of focusing on, in some sense, sleepier, more legacy pieces of the broader venture ecosystem. Financial services certainly being one that that we were earlier, very early investors in um, and have continued to scale into that category. It's now broadly called disruption, but at the time, not very many people were focused on it. Mm-hmm. There's more of a focus on kind of tech for tech's sake in the early 2000s when they got going. But personally, for me, as it relates to revolution, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That city has transformed dramatically from when I first grew up there. I mentioned before, my dad's a professor at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and I've seen through that lens, a city that's really transformed with education and talent and a focus on technology. I fundamentally believe that that, that can happen all over the U.S. And that is a big part of what we focus on at Revolution, really finding unique talent in different places. Usually that collides with where there's legacy industry and so real knowledge of how those industries operate and where opportunity sits in them, and then putting capital behind it to help scale leading businesses in those categories. Right. So it's interesting. So you went to Stanford, you live in the Bay Area, you're still in the Bay Area today, but you're not really focused on Bay Area companies. There's such an ecosystem inside the Bay Area, and there's so many tech companies there. There's a reason that the other VCs have invested primarily in that area. What's the, the contrarian view from you know, like a typical Silicon Valley VC? Yeah, so it's not an exclusionary mandate, right? We, we certainly invest in, in Bay Area companies. We invest in New York pretty heavily, LA, Boston, other places where there, there is a lot of venture capital. But I would say our mix as it relates to those places where there is more venture capital versus otherwise, it's probably 50-50, which for a typical venture fund is pretty focused outside of 
those quote unquote hotbeds. I think there's a, a dose of reality in the fact that this is a very well-worn path out here. And there are a lot of players who have great brand names who will win the deal. And so if we're competing against them, often it's on price and that doesn't feel great to win just on price alone. And I think from our perspective, having a an office out here is is really powerful on two sides. One, we have better connectivity into talent and thesis development. And a lot of that is happening here, as you mentioned. And two, we have connectivity with the later stage investors. So after we come in at the Series A, Series B level, our portfolio companies are generally not profitable. They will be needing additional financing. Um, so being able to serve as a connection between places that are a little bit more off beaten path to investors out here is really helpful. So has that changed much though? Because obviously the last couple of years, we've seen you know, lots of companies become purely distributed. Some have just let go of their lease and don't have an office anymore. Does that sort of change your, your thinking? You know, you might have someone who might personally live in the Bay Area, but their other co-founders live elsewhere and the and the rest of the team is all over the place. How is that sort of the geographical kind of shift that we've had over the last, you know, three years, shall we say, has that changed sort of the venture capital landscape in any way? Yeah, I think um, from a geo perspective, it's been a net positive. So again, our our mandate is not exclusionary. We are not solely focused on on places that have to be headquartered outside of the Bay Area or otherwise. I think it's been really beneficial to a lot of our portfolio companies because of the fluidity in, in talent and the ability to get higher caliber folks on their team, distributed or not. So that's been really powerful. Um, and I think there's been an, a more openness in investors' mind to it doesn't just have to be in San Francisco. Portfolio companies can really be anywhere and you can build great businesses in that way. For us, our North Star continues to be what the risk-adjusted returns will look like. That has a lot to do with the valuation that you go in at and the amount of cash that a company will consume to get to the end goal. So if we now believe that there are better risk-adjusted opportunities here um, that are somewhat distributed in nature, we'll go there. Right, right. That makes sense. So with the the sort of crazy kind of world, particularly in the fintech space of, you know, capital valuations, I really should say, over, you know, the run-up in 2021 into early 2022, did you pull back a little bit from the fintech space because of that? Or how did you navigate it? We did. I mean, we have a little bit of a different approach as it relates to our pacing. We take a really concentrated approach. So we'll invest in called three to five deals a year where we're taking board seats. We're typically leading um, and we're working pretty closely with those portfolio companies. And that's an average. So there are years where we won't put any capital to work. Last year is a great example of that. There was a big slowdown and correction at the later stage, but Series A, Series B remained pretty frothy. So we pulled back dramatically and and didn't actually invest in a single new deal last year. We really focused on supporting our portfolio companies. And I think that was largely because the level that we invest at the Series A stage, most companies were still pretty wed to their more recent valuations and could get insider support to support those. Uh, And we didn't think it made sense to take 2021 pricing risk for 2022 market risk. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. So then what are the typical check sizes you're doing? You said Series A, Series B, you typically lead. What's the range of check sizes and the average? 
Yeah. So range is really anywhere from three to 15 million as an initial check-in. We'll typically reserve about two to three X per portfolio company. If it's a $50 million entry check, obviously that those reserves are are commensurately lower. If it's a $3 million <laughs> entry point, that usually means we're co-leading something and it's on the earlier side of the series A to series B range. And then scale up behind that initial entry check. Okay. Maybe you could touch on an investment that I know you made in 2021. A really interesting company. My uh, colleague, Todd Anderson, had um, the founder on his uh, podcast just a few months back, and that's Sela. Sela is, I think, a super interesting company, and I think you were the you led the Series A. So tell us a little bit about what you saw there and how you feel like your thesis has played out over the last, I think it was like 18 months ago, right? We have um, long believed in embedded finance. We're not <laughs> unique in that belief. And Scylla was a, a great entry point for us as it relates to that. I think there was a lot of momentum at the time in terms of vast solutions that were really rip and replace. And we believed that there was a real opportunity to, in some sense, have a point solution that made it easier to get regulatory compliant payments up and running on short order and build a platform around that. So the founder there, Shamir, was one of the original founders of Simple, which was mm-hmm. a very early neobank acquired by BBVA. He found himself at BBVA in charge of their APIs and realized he didn't, he didn't have much of a job. Right. Got frustrated with the slowness and lack of innovation there and, and left there to start. We were really interested in the fact that they were able to do KYC, KYB effectively in a box and get customers live on ACA trails in record time, right? So if all goes well, you can get a customer up and running from MSA to go live in you know, as little as two weeks, whereas traditional banking, it's 12 to 18 months um, on a good day. And they've really built momentum behind that. I think because they're not a broader platform or, or quote unquote, bass solution, they have targeted mid-market and enterprise from the very beginning. So they both collect SaaS fees and transaction volume and haven't seen the same sort of churn that a lot of those vast solutions have because they were focused on earlier stage venture opportunities and SMB businesses. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm a big fan of what those guys are doing. Um, another one that's in your portfolio, Paro. Could you tell us a little bit about that company? Paro is a labor marketplace focused on finance and accounting professionals. It's really premised on the fact that Every company needs finance and accounting help. It can often be really, really expensive, particularly if you're going to one of the big four. And it's recurring in nature. So while you can sometimes think of it as more services revenue, really a book of their business greater than 50% is just on a recurring schedule that scales and has unique points of acquisition throughout the year, whether that's audit, you're in tax, or just monthly bookkeeping. We really like this category because from a supply perspective, labor supply perspective, that is, you've got a relatively risk-averse class of labor that doesn't want to disintermediate. They just want to have consistent work and tooling to support efficiency. Paro provides that and has built a really unique platform that enables better, faster work products. And then from a demand perspective, as I mentioned, it's really a recurring tool and, and business. You need to close your books on a monthly basis 
you need help developing a financial model. And particularly in times like these, you need help potentially doing restructuring work. And every year you got to pay your taxes. And every year, for the most part, you got to do an audit. Right, right. There's, there is job security there for everybody who has yeah. that kind of <laughs> that kind of background. So then when you look across the broader fintech landscape, are there certain areas that you're interested in specifically or do you kind of take it on a case-by-case basis with the deals that come into you? We go deep on specific segments um, when we think it's worthwhile. I think we've got some broad strokes themes that we continue to pursue. When we first got started at Revolution, it was really focused on digitization. So one of our first investments was in a company called Revolution Money, which was you know really migrating credit card swipe fees um, via the internet, cutting those down. It, it was ultimately acquired by Amex. That was a great purview into that mm-hmm. first bucket of companies. The first check I wrote before I was even at Revolution um, was into a company called Blend, which was really moving the mortgage process online. Yeah. Um, they've since gone public. It's been a really, really fun company to watch grow and scale. And so those are some of the the companies that we think to as it as it relates to digitization and the the earlier stages of, of fintech. As I mentioned, embedded finance is an important one. We've tended to focus more on the B2B side, but we also believe that most consumer products will end up, consumer brands and products will end up having some level of financial services embedded in them over time. And we continue to look um, at opportunities related to that. Insurance has been a, a category that's been pretty negatively impacted over the past 12 months as it relates to the public markets when you look Mm -hmm. at Lemonade and Hippo and others. But it's a category that we still really believe in. Um, We're investors in a company called Wagmo, which is in the pet wellness and insurance category. They have differentiated themselves in terms of a really unique claims process that's great for the consumer, but importantly, have a big B2B business um, through the employer channels, um, which we, we think is a real moat go forward for them. And then to your top question, yeah, we do a lot of work around kind of niche or underserved markets where we see real opportunities. So a great example of that is a company um, we invested in a number of years ago now called SRS Aquium, which is in the shareholder rep business. Basically, they own most of the market of post-closing VC and PE M&A stuff, broadly defined. <laughs> so you close the deal, there's an escrow. Nobody wants to be the shareholder rep. These guys have built a really nice services business on the front end that's profitable, that serves as a sales engine into the business that we really invested in, which is an escrow management business um, go forward. So you can think of them as having a profitable sales channel that drives into a massive escrow business that obviously with interest rates adjusting has proven to be wildly profitable. And then we've worked on expanding a a slew of services around that, whether that be rep and warranty insurance or otherwise. Right, right. So I want to switch gears a little bit and um, I want to talk about women-run companies and uh, venture capital flowing to them. It's still a a tiny, tiny fraction of... uh, of what you know, male-run companies receive, and as a woman in the VC space, wanted to get your perspective on whether or how you sort of view that. Is that something that you are actively trying to change, or does that come into play when you're looking to invest in in a company? Sure. So we're not impact investors; we're returns oriented. I note that first and foremost because 
you know, we're, we're not a female-focused venture fund, right? But that being said, of my portfolio companies where I'm on the board, over 80% of them have at least one female executive team member. And over half of them are female CEOs. That's not because I take a lens of, okay, I, I actually weight having a female founder and CEO team more so than I do having a male founder and CEO team. I think it's really because when females are investing, their their network tends to be a little bit more female oriented, right? I get more um, proportionately more female founders that are introduced to me than my male partners. So I think the crux of the problem is in part solved by shining a light on it and having examples of success. I think that has happened through the past cycle and in part giving more dollars to deploy to female allocators because of the natural point of one network and two biases. No matter how much you're trained in it, you tend to like things that feel more like you. Right. So it is helpful to have more perspectives at the decision-making table for sure. That's fair points and something that I think we're continuing to try and shine the light on. So then there's much been made in the fintech space, especially about the dry powder that is sitting on VCs balance sheets, because like, as you said, you made no investments last year and you're not alone in that. There were several other prominent VCs that publicly you know, said the same thing. So I'm just curious, I mean, you're you're a little bit different. Maybe you don't have the the same sort of LP base that a typical VC has, but is there any kind of you know, pressure to start deploying your dry powder um, in the near term? Again, last year was super frustrating, right? We looked at hundreds <laughs> of thousands of opportunities at the Series A level. There just there wasn't an appetite for most founders to reset and appreciate that they had raised at values that didn't make sense. I think a little bit of that was a COVID overhang. So when COVID first got started and everybody was pressuring their companies to extend runway because there were predictions of doomsday. You know, there was maybe a month, a month and a half. Right. It was it was short, I remember. Or there was a little bit of a dip in valuations and then it was to the highest level ever. So I think last year folks were kind of waiting on the sidelines and extending where they could at the Series A level and avoiding raising if they could. So what we saw was most of the portfolio companies that were raising outside external rounds kind of had their backs against the wall because they didn't have insider support. Mm-hmm. And I think this year that's going to start changing and there's going to be a greater recognition that this is a longer cycle, that this is not a blip in the roadmap and that you can't extend forever. And I think there's going to be some really interesting consolidation and opportunities that come about. Consolidation in the sense that there are a lot of portfolio companies across the ecosystem that raised it crazy valuations versus their revenue and are in some sense trapped in their cap tables. And maybe it makes more sense for them to consolidate with another company that did so similarly, and they can start to, you know, build a business that is more rationalized. And similarly on the valuation front, as these portfolio companies go out to market and kind of have to to take the medicine now, you know, last year we saw that 
shift at the later stage for sure, where the massive mega rounds, which we typically define as over 100 million, were down about 80% year on year. um, And new unicorn creation was cut in half. But we didn't see that same sort of shift at the early stage. Um, We actually saw valuations go up at the Series A level by about 27%. Interesting. Um, We think this year is going to be that shift at the earlier stages. Insider rounds dry up a little bit because you mentioned the dry powder, but there's also concentration limits in people's funds. So you can't just continue to support the same valuations forever. Right. Then, So as you sort of look ahead to this year, you know, we're recording this in late January, but I'm curious, I mean, I presume you don't expect to be out of market the whole of this year, right? What What's your kind of, I'm obviously interested in fintech, but even more broadly, are you confident that you'll be in market multiple times this year? Yeah. Can't perfectly predict the future. And I certainly <laughs> wouldn't have said in January last year that we would be out of the market the whole year. But just seeing where we are right now from a top of funnel perspective and in the in the deeper diligence conversations that we're having where there is an openness to a more rationalized valuation and structure go forward with a lot of these companies, um, I think we can pretty confidently say we'll we'll be deploying a fair amount of money into this market this year. Okay. Well, that's a great place to to leave it, Clara. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts with us today. Yeah, it was great to connect. Thanks for the time. If you like the show, please go ahead and give it a review on the podcast platform of your choice. And be sure to tell your friends and colleagues about it. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.